from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. I titled it Eloquent Rage because I had a student when I was finishing up my PhD, a young black woman who was sitting on my lectures and many months after she was in my class, she said, I love to hear you lecture because your lectures were filled with rage and it was like the most eloquent rage ever. And it was a moment of reckoning for me because I had been dogged by that angry black woman stereotype. And so I was immediately defensive and said to her, you know, I'm not angry, I'm passionate. Uh, and she kind of pinned me with this black girl look, you know, and just said, you know, you know you're angry. Uh, and I, and it was like a moment where only a black woman can give you that look. And many, if you know black women, you know what that look is. You know, it's like, stop, you know, be for real, right? Um, I see you. Uh, and she did, and it helped me to be honest about the fact that I was deeply angry about many of the injustices that I had faced in my life. And angry as a black person about the injustices that black people face every day. Dr. Brittany Cooper, Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University, and author of Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers a Superpower, published by St. Martin's Press. In the book Eloquent Rage, Cooper gives us an up-close and personal look at what it means to be black, female, and a feminist. Cooper reminds us that anger is a powerful source of energy that can give women the strength to keep on fighting and that rage can be a clarifying and essential political resource in a shifting political landscape. Growing up in eastern Louisiana, Cooper witnessed firsthand that black life isn't equal, nor is it fair. According to Cooper, her book keeps us all honest and accountable and reminds women that they don't have to settle for less. I'm Johnny O'Hanson Jr. and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, Eloquent Rage with Dr. Brittany Cooper in Black America. I want readers to come away believing that we actually can change the world, that, you know, that if we are, you know, willing to to sit with the contradictions and complexities that we all face, that, you know, maybe we can have a clear idea about how to change things in our own little neck of the woods. I want folks to have a clear sense about what the, the things that black girls struggle with, but I want even folks who are not black women to see that, you know, black women's stories have something to tell us about the American story. Black women's stories have something to tell us about black people's collective story. And far too often, when black women talk about ourselves, people think that we're only talking about ourselves and that our stories are not universal and that they can't apply to anybody but us. And that's, as you just said, is, is untrue. And so I think that there's something in this book for everybody, for white girls, for people of color, for black men, for little girls. You know, there are so, you know, black women are are multifaceted, and I and I trust that even in being able to tell my own story alongside the stories of so many Black women that I admire and love, and who have informed and inspired me. In her book *Elegant Rage*, Dr. Brittany Cooper doesn't shy away from friendship and feminism, family and violence, sex and faith, and race and gender. She gives voice to the many voices Black women in our society. Cooper is passionate, honest, and heartfelt. Born and raised in Ruston, Louisiana, she earned an undergraduate degree in English and political science from Howard University, her master's and Ph.D. from Emory University. Taking the lives of black women and girls seriously, Cooper shows us the anger that makes Serena Williams such a powerful tennis player and why Beyonce's girl power anthems resonate so hard. 
Too often, black women raised has been caricatured into an ugly and destructive force that threatens the stability and social fabric of American democracy. According to Cooper, black women know what it means to love themselves in a world that hates them. Recently, In Black America spoke with this black feminist prophet. I'm from a small town in northern Louisiana called Ruston, uh, right near Grambling State University. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so I grew up small town with working class black folks, church folks, uh, who, you know, who helped me to be a a black girl who was self-assured, but who also uh, wanted to get out in the world and try to be impactful. And so in many ways, uh, the work that I do is in tribute to the women who raised me, my grandmother, my mother. Uh, and my three aunts. I understand. What led you to write your second book? Yes, Eloquent Rage. I wanted to have a conversation that is not particularly academic about feminism and about black women's anger. Often I think black women struggle under the stereotype of being the angry black woman. And so many of us deny the very legitimate kinds of anger that we often experience. And so I wanted that stereotype to not be weaponized against us, but rather to create a set of conversations for us to think about what does it mean to own that we are angry, that we have the right to be angry, and that very often that anger helps us to do our work better uh, rather than undercutting our ability to show up to the things that we're called to do. Now, you said this wasn't a self-help book. I beg to differ. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I think yeah. young ladies actually read the book. They can kind of mirror themselves through the experiences that you've experienced thus far. Yeah. But he, so here's the thing. I hope that the book helps people for sure. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I'm railing against with the sort of culture of self-help is I'm tired of black women and girls blaming themselves for everything that is wrong with the world. So there's this thing where, you know, if black women haven't found the love they want, they just keep on saying, well, what's wrong with me? What is the thing that I need to fix? And, and so often the politics of self-help are rooted in this idea that we have personal deficits that we need to fix or amend. And I want to reject that and say that I think that black women are enough. Um, I think that who we are is absolutely fine. And that doesn't mean that we don't all have personal work that we need to do, but it does mean that we don't have to keep blaming ourselves for all of the ways that the world is broken. And so this book tries to pursue an analysis that helps us think politically and structurally about why black women are in the positions that we are in, so that what we're not doing is staying up every night or going to church asking, you know, asking God to fix us or trying to fix ourselves. I don't think that that's what the problem with black women is. I think the problem is white supremacy. Um, I think the problem is a culture of male domination. I don't think that that's a story that black women hear enough. And so if in hearing that story, black women are helped um, and helped to feel like they are whole and like the problem is not with them, then certainly I'm here for that kind of help, for sure. I understand. You lay a lot on the table. Was it therapeutic, writing this? I'm still trying to decide whether it was therapeutic. (laughs) Uh, It was hard. It was very hard to try to tell uh, my personal truths in ways Mm -hmm. that I hoped would be politically resonant for people, but it felt necessary to do. And, you know, I don't think that I knew the depths of my own sort of emotional life in some ways around these politics that I try to live out. And Mm so um, I'm really thankful for that insight. And I certainly feel it certainly helps me every time um, a black woman reads this book and says that she feels seen and heard. Every time that happens, I feel like I've done my work. I know that's right. What led you to become more 
accustomed or attuned to the majority population. You made that transition while you were in school. You mean, why did I end up sort of having the relationships with white folks that I have? Is that the is yes. that the question? Yes. Yeah. I so I was growing up in small town Louisiana, and I basically got tagged as a around age six as an academically gifted child, and that meant that I was then put in classrooms that were majority white classrooms, and that in and of itself is deeply unjust, that, you know, we only see sort of white children as being academic achievers in many pockets of this country still today. Uh, And so it changed the social landscape of my life, so that even though at my own house I talk about, you know, I grew up in a very black working class community where, Mm -hmm. you know, my mom is listening to Luther Vandross and Freddie (laughs) Jackson, you know, and then I go to school and, you know, I'm just sort of there with white kids and doing activities with them and and really cut off from sort of a social life with other black children. And it created real challenges for me around how to to show up and be excellent and meet, you know, my mama's and my community standards for being a good student, but how to have the connections with black children that I craved. And also what it meant to be friends with white children and to legitimately like many of them, but also to deal with them dealing with their their parents' racism, you know. So I tell the story about the little girl that I was friends with who, you know, couldn't invite me to her birthday party because, as she said, you know, her daddy uh, didn't like black people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are the kinds of encounters that black children have to face and have to go through. And I didn't always, you know, that wasn't how my mama came up through school, so she didn't always have insight about how to help me navigate that. And so it was a thing that I had to, in some cases, figure out for myself. And, you know, and I wanted to be able to tell that story and to say that so much of my own journey around what I understand about white people is growing up in deep, intimate community with white people for most of my childhood and, you know, early life, and then being able to make a different set of choices once I went to college and, you know, and since then. What made you come to the point where you needed to write this book entitled Eloquent Rage? I titled it Eloquent Rage because I had a student when I was finishing up my Ph.D., a young black woman, who would sit in on my lectures, and many months after she was in my class, she said, I love to hear you lecture because your lectures were filled with rage, and it was like the most eloquent rage ever. And it was a moment of reckoning for me because I had been dogged by that angry black woman stereotype. And so I was immediately defensive and said to her, you know, I'm not angry. I'm passionate. Uh, And she kind of pinned me with this black girl look, you know, and just said, you know, you know, you're angry. Uh, And I, and it was like a moment where only a black woman can give you that look. And many, if you know, black women, you know what that look is, you know, it's like, stop, you know, be for real. Right. I see you. Uh, And she did. And it helped me to be honest about the fact that I was deeply angry about many of the injustices that I had faced in my life and angry as a black person about the injustices that black people face every day. But I was resistant to being characterized as angry because when white people use that phrasing, they're often using it to undercut black people and to say that we don't have a grasp on reality or to say that we're not good at our work or to say that our judgment should not be trusted. And she saw my anger and said, it helped me connect to you. This felt authentic. And it helped me to see that in my own hands, with my own narrative and my own story and my choice to own it, that my anger could make me better at what I did. It could create the context for me to connect. It could power my work and make me a better teacher, make me a better writer, that my anger didn't have to be destructive and that it didn't have to um, make me less clear, um, that it could actually make me more clear about what it is that we're fighting for. What led you to Howard University? 
So I loved Howard because I had learned the story of Thurgood Marshall when I was Mm -hmm. a high school student. But also when I got ready to apply for colleges, I was actually trying to be like my white counterparts. And so I didn't apply to any black schools, uh, I think, other than Dillard University down in southern Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Howard called me in the middle of the summer and said, we have a scholarship for you. And, you know, look, like I said, I'm a working class black girl. So I went where the money was. uh, And it was the best decision that I ever made. I just I continue. I am continually thankful uh, because I, you know, one day at Howard cured so much of the trauma of my childhood having to grow up primarily in classrooms with white children because I got to Howard and on my very first day in class, it was the first time since I had been like six years old that I wasn't presumed to be the smartest black student in the classroom because I was surrounded by black nerds. Um, And I think every kid should have a version of that experience if they don't get it before college, you know, of just knowing that the pressure is not on you to represent all black people. Uh, You can become yourself and you can become a better version of yourself. And so, so many parts of Eloquent Rage are also my love letter to Howard. Absolutely. I understand that you ran for president at Howard. (laughs) I ran for president of the Student Association, yes. And how did that experience affect you moving forward? Yeah, you know, it's formative. Look, Howard student government politics are serious business (laughs) because when you come to Howard, you know, they're like, we are training you for who you're going to be in the world. And so you spend all of this money running campaigns and having polling teams. And the the long and short of it is I lost the election and I was absolutely devastated. And But it shaped me critically in a few ways. Uh, It helped me to know that electoral politics is not the thing that I ever need to be doing uh, because you really have to like people to do electoral politics and like him, you know, I mean, look, I love our people, but, you know, the people person thing I'm less good at. And also, though, it was the first time that I had, you know, I had folks saying to me that I didn't look presidential, that mm-hmm. my hair needed to be done differently, that I needed to wear my makeup a certain way and wear certain kinds of earrings. And so there was this pressure to perform a, a kind of femininity that was not the way that I moved through the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was in some ways my first encounter with a kind of problematic gender politics. And so I talk about that election as being one of the, the, the moments in my genesis towards a feminist turn, uh, because it was the first time that I had that I that I felt like people judged me because of my gender and because of my femininity in ways that I wasn't used to. When you wrote the book, there are many chapters that we can talk and we can just pick a chapter and just talk for hours. But I found it interesting in the chapter with with strong female leads. Why was that important for you to include in the book? Yeah, so one of the things I'm trying to work through, uh, particularly writing this book in the aftermath of 2016, is what happens in the election of 2016 Mm -hmm. uh, with Hillary Clinton. So I try to get at that by thinking about my own relationships with young white women uh, as a little girl and the ways that I love, that I believe in the girl power story. And so if you ask me the kind of things that I like culturally, I'm always watching television shows uh, that Netflix says have strong female leads in them. But I, you know, don't particularly have lots of personally close relationships with white women. So it's weird to like lots of shows where white women are at the helm of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I use that as a context to sort of think about what happens with Hillary Clinton and the fact that I thought Hillary Clinton should have won the presidency. I voted for her in the primaries. And it was interesting to have that stance when 
many of the folks in my more radical feminist communities were like, but her politics aren't right, and she and Bill Clinton are deeply racist, and, you know, and so we shouldn't trust them. And I thought, sure, like, show me an American white politician who has not been racist in some significant ways, um, and we'll not be talking about American politics if that is the case, but also trying to hold that I learned this complexity in childhood that you could be, I had to have a childhood where I was friends with people who were often had racially problematic politics Mm -hmm. and I still had to learn to relate to them on a human level. And I think that that set of skills shaped the way that I engaged with Hillary Clinton, that I didn't think that she was right on race any more than I think the vast majority of white people in America are right on race because very often they don't have the tools nor are they challenged to get right and to do right around racial politics. but for me, that has never been the only marker about whether about the kinds of choices we make in terms of who leads, because for black folks, we've never had that luxury. And so it bothered me greatly that Hillary Clinton was held to a standard that we didn't we have not yet held any other American politician to. And so I thought it was really important to say that, that you can both be deeply clear about the kind of racial challenges that many white people face if they have not been forced to reckon with their privilege, and also say at the same time that you know, candidates like Hillary Clinton deserved a shot at the presidency, presidency that she was qualified, um, and that I think that it's good feminist politics to say that, and that I don't think it undercuts uh, the feminism that I believe in to say that I think that that particular woman should be running this country. Dr. Cooper, I found it interesting, and I didn't even notice it when Michelle Obama showed up at the Trump inauguration in a ponytail. How did you, how did you d- detect what was going on there? Yeah, I mean, look, this is my read of what's happening. I just remember that the first time I saw her and I was, you know, I began texting my friends. I was like, do y'all see Michelle's hair? Because Michelle Obama is a fashion icon and her hair is absolutely, you know, amazing, always done, you know, fried, dyed, and laid to the side, as we say in the South, like always, you know, all this body and bounce and, and, and is gorgeous. And she just kind of had the kind of elegant pinup, the kind of elegant quick updo, and not the kind of pomp and circumstance that I would imagine as her last formal act as first lady. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw that hair, I was like, you know, I know black girl's hair if I know anything, and I know that that ain't the kind of hair you do in this formal moment. And so I read it as her, you know, calling BS and saying, this is a hot mess, what is about to happen. I need y'all to know that I see what it is and I'm not here for it. And so she just looked done. She just looked completely over it. And so I argue that that too is an act of eloquent rage, that it is an act of dissent from handing over the American homeland to a fascist who is going to terrorize all of us. Um, and I, you know, and I think when you see a woman like Michelle Obama, who is always tight, come to the last inauguration and her hair is thrown up in a kind of messy bun ponytail and she's pulled, she looks perfectly nice, but she's just pulled a dress out the closet looks like like and shown up there, <laughs> you know, like that's when that's the way the subtle ways that black women communicate that they are absolutely done with the situation, and that's what it read like to me. Speaking of hair, you had a hair experience at the at a pool party when you were younger. <laughs> yeah, I um, you know, I talk and look. I think so many black girls have had this experience <laughs> where. You know, I had all this hair as a kid, and I had a perm, and that meant that you couldn't just get in the pool, uh, you know, because that chlorine over a relaxer will do terrible damage to a black girl's hair. And so I'm in the pool with all my little white friends trying to keep my hair from getting wet because I also don't want to get fussed at when I get home. And there's all these white mamas around the pool, and they're whispering, you know, it's just hair, and I don't know, and why is her mama so strict? And my mama's not there to defend herself because – 
she wouldn't be around the pool at 3.30 in the afternoon because she's at work. And so she gets there, you know, and has to just, you know, she doesn't upbraid me, but she just says, okay, babe, you know, we'll wash wash your hair. And so then it becomes a two- or three-hour ordeal on a Friday night to wash my hair to make sure that no chlorine kind of damages it. And I just talk about that experience as one of the differences between the lives of black girls and the lives of little white girls, even when, you know, we're friends, um, is that this is the way that culture and power um, and levels of access show up in moments that are deeply formative and the ways that little black girls have to sort of navigate not being understood in these white spaces where white people take their experience as being the norm. How did you handle the, the, the drama, the domestic violence that was going on in your household, particularly with your dad, because you were almost not here? Yeah. Um, I tell uh, the very harrowing uh, and devastating story of the circumstances of my birth, where my mom, a former partner of my mom's, the man she was dating before she met my dad, was deeply jealous and angered with her for moving on. And so when she was just a few weeks pregnant with me, that man tried to, uh, he shot both she and my father and tried to kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both survived the attack. And, you know, weeks later, my mom found out she was pregnant with me. I had also survived that attack. But so that was a, a separate man. And then, you know, and then I grew up in a context where my father also struggled with alcohol, struggled with alcoholism and was himself deeply violent to my mother. And one of the goals that I, you know, am trying to work through in that chapter is how to, how black women can reckon with the violence that we have, many of us, many, many of us have experienced at the hands of black men without throwing black men away, uh, without casting black men as monsters. And sometimes we don't tell that story because we're so afraid that black men will be pathologized in a world that already says, you know, terrible things about who black men are. But this is black women's opportunity to tell our story and hold our truth. Um, And so in trying to zoom out to the structural places that I feel like the men in my community and in my life got their messages about what it means to be a man. I try to also hold the complexity of my father's story that he wasn't a particularly great father to me and he was a terrible partner to my mother. But when I was nine, my father got killed and he got killed protecting his then girlfriend and her children from another man with a gun. Um, And so to me, it becomes a powerful story about like when when black men say, well, you know, well, brothers get abused, too, or patriarchy, you know, you know, abuses us, too. I say, yeah, you're you know, who are you telling? Right. Like, I know what it is to both have been victimized by violent men and also to have lost men that I loved and cared about at the hands of other violent men. Um, And for me, that means that we have a charge to challenge toxic masculinity in our communities um, and to give black men a different set of scripts around how to engage their emotional lives um, and how to engage their desire for power that don't involve them killing other men and or killing women and children. How did you work through the, the pain, understanding that your dad had empathy for someone else he also had empathy for, you know, the, the Nigerian girls, but not you and your mom. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I don't, I don't know that that's a pain that I will ever fully get over. What I hope is that in telling the story 
folks can see that even the men that we think are monsters are often deeply complex people. Um, and, I, and I do think that our justice project as black people means that we've got to figure out how to hold the complexity of our truths. And so I try to do that in honoring my dad, even as I have many issues with my dad. I also think that part of what I hope is that we can create the space to have real conversations. One of the things I've been thinking about recently and said in another conversation the other day is I do think, based upon who my dad was, that had he lived and had the benefit of some life and some help mm-hmm. uh, with his alcohol addiction, um, I do think if he could read the story that I told and read how deeply his actions affected my life, I see enough humanity in his story to believe that he actually would apologize, that he actually would hold, that he actually could hold the his destruction and that he would take responsibility for it. Um, that is the thing that I hope. Uh, would be true for his story. And for me, for me, that's a healing idea. I found it fascinating when you wrote about uh, the young man that knew your dad and come to find out that he was a very smart individual, didn't have to study for tests. And (laughs) that DNA is in you. (laughs) Yeah, you know, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, that was such a crazy encounter to be a, a kid and you know there's a way to southern people I was like well who are your people mm-hmm. you know and I'm sort of telling this teacher who my people are and he says well, I knew your dad you know and then he tells me this story about picking my dad up on the side of the road one day uh, and he was like you know he was a really smart cat you know and I didn't think the cats like him would care about starving children in Africa and all of this kind of stuff and so that became one of my keys to the journey of trying to figure out who my dad really was beyond who I who I got to see him to be and, um, you know, and so I do what I hope and what I said to my mom is I think I got the best parts of both her and my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I, what I'm interested in, you know, I, I, you know, I want to be generous because I think that we're all struggling with things and I'm not interested in trying to demonize black men. I'm trying to figure out how to hold um, how to hold these truths and how to hold that pain, but how to hold it in ways that feel transformative. And, and I'm not asking any other woman to, to, to be uh, so generous to the men in her lives. I just know to the men in her life, but I just know that for me, that I had, I have been haunted in my life by seeing my dad as a monster. And so being able to, understand him as something other than that beyond the kind of monstrous acts um, that I experienced from him has, you know, it's at least part of the journey. And if we're going to be really true to our politics, then, you know, systems of racism and, and capitalism and patriarchy, they create, they turn men into monsters. And that's mm-hmm. why we got to undo these systems. If we want the boys and men in our lives to have a different set of possibilities beyond being violent and trying to dominate women as a way to feel powerful and seen in the world uh, and as a way to feel valuable, valuable in the world, then that happens at the level of systemic change. But perhaps until we can get there, what we can have is the context for some personal reckoning with each other that is at the same time deeply loving. I found it interesting when you talk about your mom uh, reading a lot of books, Jet, Ebony, Essence, and got to a point where she turned her life around and got to where she was a happy individual. You know, I try to hold that even though I'm a little bit against self-help kind of stuff because I feel like it, as I said, you know, makes it makes women internalize the problems with themselves. Dr. Brittany Cooper, Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University and author of Eloquent Rage, 
a black feminist discovers her superpower. We will conclude our conversation on next week's program. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at kut.org. Until we have the opportunity again for production assistant Delia Jones and technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.